Let's go, we're going to open in prayer, and then we're going to turn to Mark chapter 16. Lord, we just come before you. We ask that we've worshipped you in song so far. We're getting ready to worship through the word. We ask that you bless this time. Let your words come out as we look at this resurrection story from our, from the book of Mark. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath day was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning of the first day of the week, they came to, to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said amongst themselves, who shall, roll away, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in long white garment, and they were afraid. And he said unto them, Be not afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where he, they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they a thing to any man, for they were afraid. This is the resurrection story according to Mark. And we have, this is one of the few stories in the Bible that are related in all four Gospels. And that shows you the importance of the resurrection. And the resurrection is the most important thing for Christianity because if Jesus had been crucified and stayed dead, he would have lied to everybody because he said, I'm coming back in three days. And so, you know, last year we talked about all the proofs of the resurrection, how it's not really a faith thing to believe in the resurrection because of how valid it is. 500 witnesses is a lot of witnesses to, the, to have seen him. And that's what Paul talks about in Corinthians. He says, there are 500 people that saw him, go talk to them. You know, and back in that day, you wouldn't, just as you wouldn't today, you wouldn't say, well, there's lots of witnesses, go talk to them unless you knew that you were going to get the right story from them. So we're looking at this, and we want to set this up. Jesus has just been crucified. And we're not going to spend a long time on the crucifixion and the scourging. We've done that in times. But the scourging, you know, took the flesh off his body through the, through the beating. They hung on a cross. And the crucifixion was probably the most cruel way to execute somebody. And the Roman soldiers, when they went to, to kill him, you know, to make sure he was dead and, and break the legs of the people on the cross because the, the Jews wanted them off the cross for Passover, they were amazed that he was already dead. Because usually when you went on the cross, it took you upwards of a week to die. And it was a very painful, excruciating death, and basically you suffocated from the crucifixion. This all happened, and they were amazed that Jesus was dead. They thrust the spear up in his side, and out came water and blood. And we talked, you know, we've talked about how the scientists uh, and stuff looked at it and say that shows that he was dead. His, his blood was separating. So we know he was dead. They put him in a, and put him in a grave. And he stayed there for three days. And then we see the story start here. Early in the morning, it says early, it's not even sunrise yet. The sun is just beginning, and these women come. Mary Magdalene, 
loved him because he cast out the demons from her and changed her life completely. Just as he changes everybody's life that he, that he gets in, in a relationship with, her life was changed completely. Mary, the mother of James. That's interesting they put it that way. <laughs> this is Jesus' mother. <laughs> okay. Uh, she, she had other children and had many other children, and so they're referring to her as Mary, the mother of James. They could have said Simeon and Jose. Uh, uh, but he, he just identified her enough to so people would know this is his mother, Mary Magdalene, who loved him, and Salome, the mother of James and John, uh, the sons of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Sons of Thunder, yes. <laughs> the mother of the Sons of Thunder. The one who was brave enough to come to Jesus and said, I want my children, you know, I want my boys to sit on your right and left hand when you get into your kingdom. You know, very bold <laughs> statement from the mom to, to Jesus. These three ladies come, and you can picture the sadness. You know, we, you know, I, love, I love it when people talk about Thomas later on, who, when the disciples tell him they've seen Jesus, and he says, you know, unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. But you can imagine, here's these women coming to this cross, uh, coming to this grave. They know he's dead. They know that he's been saying that he'd resurrect, but you know, nobody really seemed to understand it. We've talked this many times, even if we led up to this. The disciples did not seem to even understand that Jesus kept telling them, I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, and we've talked about that. How many times have you heard something that doesn't agree with what you think and you don't really hear it? <laughs> You know, because it's not what it's supposed to be, so you just basically ignore it. Well, the disciples and the rest of the followers did the same thing. When Jesus talked about dying and resurrecting, they basically blanked out, zoned out for a little while. This doesn't compute. You're the Messiah. You're going to start your kingdom, so you can't die. And because you're saying that we consider nonsense, we're not listening to you. So when he died, it shocked them. Even though he had told them over and over and over, it still didn't register in their minds. The women are going to the temple, uh, to the temple, yeah, the, the sepulcher three days later, and, and you, can, you can hear them. They've laid this great big stone in front of the grave, and there's been people who say that it weighed as much as a ton, and I don't know, it's, it rolled down a slope anyway, so they, the way they sealed these is they would, they would go downward into the sepulcher, and then they'd roll a rock Usually not so big that you can't get in, but in this case, the, the scribes and Pharisees wanted to make sure that nobody got in to this tomb. And if you remember, they, they asked Pilate for a, a guard. And he said, you've got your guard. And he sent a Roman guard to guard this tomb. And they, and they sealed it. They put their wax impressions in and everything, and if somebody broke those seals, it was against the law, and it was death to break those seals. So the women are there going, how are we going to get this stone out of there? You know, strong men would have had trouble getting this stone out of there. And here's three women going, how are we going to move this? Probably trying to figure out, well, maybe we can uh, you know, sweet talk the guards and move it so we can anoint the body and they can roll it back. And they're going out there in sadness. The apostles and disciples are hiding <laughs> for good reason. Jesus had just died the death of a, we would call terrorist. You know, he was being punished for going against Rome, quote unquote, being the king. He had 12 men that followed him everywhere they went. 
What would we do in our day? The same thing Rome would do in their day. <laughs> we're, we've got the leader. We're going to go get <laughs> the rest of the guys. And so the, the disciples were hiding. They were very fearful. They would pin their hopes on the Messiah. As far as they were concerned, it was over. Their life, they were on the top 12 list as far as they were concerned <laughs> of Rome. Of the, uh, definitely of the Sanhedrin. You know, they knew they were on their top 12 list, or 11, you know, James, uh, Judas is dead. You know, they know that they're on the top 11 most wanted <laughs> men in, in Jerusalem. And they're hiding in fear because they truly did not believe Jesus when he said, I am going to resurrect. I am going to resurrect. And it's amazing that they, they get there and they find the stone rolled away. <laughs> The obstacle they expected to find there was no longer there. And they entered in, they looked in, and there's, it says a man in white clothes, but we know it's an angel and another, and another one. And he says, the one you're seeking is not here. He's resurrected just as he told you he would. Reminding them, you were told. You were told he wouldn't be here. How many times do we go through our life taking God's promises and ignoring them? God is a God of victory. He's a God of life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and more abundant. How, many, how often do we live without life, technically, or even abundance because we don't listen to what he says? We basically ignore him. I've seen so many people live defeated lives because they don't say, I've got a resurrected Savior in me. When we become Christians, he makes us a new creation. And usually we live in the old man. All of us do. I do. All of us do this to a great degree. Living in the old, defeated person. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life. Can you remember the day you accepted Jesus Christ and how much freedom and, and joy there was in your life? Yeah. Knowing that your sins have been forgiven, knowing that Jesus has taken them off, and then we start living our life and we start going back to the old and saying, well, I've got to do something about these sins. They're just you know, building up on me. I've got to do something for them. They're gone. Jesus paid for them. They're gone. There's an old skit I remember seeing where this guy comes down, a, down the aisle, you know, carrying a bunch of bags and backpacks, and you know, they're supposed to be his sin. He comes to the cross, he lays them down. And the way it goes is usually when he leaves, he starts leaving without the bags, but he goes back and he picks his bags up. Most of us do that in our life. We go to the cross and say, God, here's all my problems, here's my, here's my sins. And we walk away carrying our sins back with us instead of leaving them. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It is easy and light. When you're feeling stressed out, turn to God and say, God, here's my problems. You said you will take them. Peter tells us, he says, cast all our cares on him. Hopefully you have been at some point in your life where you have lived casting your cares on God at least for a day or two, if not months or years. But you know how nice it is when you can cast all your cares on him and not worry about them? It is wonderful to be able to say, God, here's my problems. Uh, you, they're yours now. 
they're yours now. I, I lived for a few years with very little income, and if you, you, when I ran out of money, I'd take the bills, I'm going, God, these are yours. <laughs> you know, I don't know how they're getting paid, but you've got me where you want, they're yours. And you know what? He was very faithful for three years. He paid the bills. Now, sometimes I had to go out and do some extra work or whatever, but he gave me the work to do to get the extra money. Sometimes it would just be a gift that would come in, but he provided. I didn't, I didn't stress out and worry because I had learned very quickly, God, these are yours. <laughs> that doesn't mean I was lazy and did nothing. You know, I took the opportunities. But do we have burdens in our life, sins in our life, that are overpowering us? We need to turn to God and say, God, I'm trusting you. This is yours. I'm trusting you to crucify this area of my life and live through me. I've shared over and over, I love the Christian life. It is the easiest life in the world to live when you do it right. You give God the problems. <laughs> you walk in faith. You let him crucify your flesh. And he pour, comes into us and pours out of us. When he says, change your lifestyle, it's okay, God, come in and, you know, I'm giving you permission to crucify it, and I want you to come in and live out. <coughs> if you're striving to do what you think God wants you to do, let go. Let go of that strife. Let God crucify your desires, and it becomes easy to become him. Because he says he indwells us. He fills us. And you know what? When he fills us, the word of his filling means that he overflows and he splashes out on everybody. He crucifies our flesh. He fills us so much that he just splashes out on everybody we come around. That's how easy the life is with him. You just say, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to let you direct. I'm going to lead. Now, I say it's easy, but we know that it's not. We tend to get into business of this. Okay, God, I gave you this, but I want it back. Our flesh does not like letting God be in charge. And we have this desire to be in charge. We have this desire to be in control. And God's saying, just let it go. Let it go. How many times have you made great plans? I mean, maybe you made great plans for your life. And then you find out they didn't work. God has a plan for our life. And you know what? His plan is going to work if you just let him do it. He doesn't, he's not surprised when we don't let him work in our life. You know, there's, you know, we said it over and over. You're never going to hear God say, I didn't know that was going to happen. He already knows what I'm going to choose, what I'm going to do, what you're going to do, what you're going to choose. Nothing you do and I do surprises him. When we make a mess of his plans, he knew it was going to happen. But you know, he's the creator of the universe. He can take all the broken parts of our life and recreate them. It's not hard for God to do that. He created the whole world out of nothing. He can take the parts of your life that you've made a mess of and start all over again. He's the only one that can take the, the sod, burnt boards of your life and, and make them brand new. We can't do that. When we've mangled our life, we can't go back and make everything brand new. He can. We need to learn to trust him. 
Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he rose in victory <laughs> to show that he was God and had power over all. And he came and the women, the women saw him. Do you realize what an interesting thing that scriptures are for the women to be the first one to see Jesus and be the one that was reporting his resurrection? In our day, we don't understand this. In their day, a woman couldn't even be the eyewitness of a trial for a crime. And Jesus and God used them to be the one who get, gets to give the first testimony to his resurrection. God elevated the women so greatly during that time, they got to be the one to go to the, go to the disciples and tell them, Jesus isn't there. He isn't there just as he said he wasn't. And I'm sure as soon as the angel said, they started remembering. He said this was going to happen. And I love this version of Mark. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. You know, why and Peter? Well, Peter was at the trial of Jesus, denying that he knew Jesus. You know, Amazingly, an hour before, he picked up a sword and was ready to fight 600 soldiers <laughs> and cut off a guy's ear, and now he's denying that he knows Jesus. And who's he denying him to? We've talked about this before. Little girls. <laughs> you know, he's denying before the little girls, the serving, serving girls. No power, no, no authority. Well, surely you know, oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> If, if anybody can read the Bible and not see the humor God puts in it, <laughs> it's an amazing thing to see how much humor is in the scriptures. Peter, ready to fight, saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm not ready to fight 600 army men. <laughs> and just an hour later, denying Jesus to the serving girls. <laughs> God has a purpose. And he's going, and tell Peter I'm alive. Tell him I haven't. Forget, that I haven't forgotten him. He's not been thrown away. I love that God used Peter. How many times do we make mistakes in our life? And sometimes we make really bad mistakes. Sometimes we walk away from God for a period of our life. And God says, come back. Why? Because he forgives. The power of forgiveness I don't have to fail and do 500 things to get back in God's graces. <laughs> because he says, I've forgiven you. He gives us grace. Now, a lot of people go, if you give grace, you're just encouraging people to misbehave. No, actually, you get people, people when they're given grace usually get very convicted because they know they deserved something else. They know they deserve punishment. They deserve criticism. And God says, I've got grace for you. Not that he ignores our sin. When you sin, you have sown something and you're going to reap the results of sin. That's not God's statement. That's just a law that God put in, in place. You reap what you sow. And that's his law. Can he take it away? We've talked about that. Yes, he can block the sowing if he wants to. Usually he doesn't. Sometimes he does. We will reap what we sow, but God says, I've forgiven you. I can still use you. 
I can use you no matter how bad you've fallen into sin. I can use you. We look at Paul, you know, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. He was out there actively putting Christians in jail, testifying that so they'll be executed. And God called him and said, I'm going to use you. Give him that bright light, knocks him off his horse, talks to him. Basically makes him decide to serve him. You know, now we have said, and we do understand, Paul could have said no. If we were in Paul's shoes, we would not have said no. I've just been knocked off my horse, blinded by light, told that I'm going to serve him. Yes, he could have said no. He had a free will. He could have said no. Nobody in their right mind would have said no. Because what would the next step have been? <laughs> Probably death, yeah. We look at how God can make people do what he wants. You look at Jonah. Jonah says, I'm not going to go preach to the enemy of Israel. I'm going to go the other way. Ends up coming back in a big fish to be spit up on the land. And even then, he really wasn't that great. His message was, you're going to be destroyed in 30 days. Yeah. That was his message. You're going, to be you're going to be destroyed. Then go sit up on the mountainside waiting for the destruction. Well, the city repented. You think about how good God can be? Yeah. It wasn't even a good message and they repented <laughs> because of God touching them. You know, all Jonah said is, you're going to be destroyed. We'll see you later. <laughs> and God turned the whole entire nation. God doesn't need us, really, to be doing anything for him. We get the privilege of being used by him. We get the privilege of sharing the gospel with our family and friends, neighbors, and anybody else that we're bold enough to talk to about the gospel. But you know, God can do it without us. In the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period, it talks about an angel flying in the air preaching the gospel. He doesn't need us. He could, do it. He could use angels to preach the gospel if he really wanted to. He gives us the privilege of serving him. I don't know if you've ever looked at it as being a privilege to serve God. In whatever level he's given you, serve him. If, if you only have one gift to use and you use it 100% of the time and you use it the correct way, do you realize that you're going to be getting more reward than somebody who might have 10 gifts and only uses five of them? You know, from human point, that person got a lot more done. They used five gifts. <laughs> From God's perspective, just as he said to the disciples and the widow gave her two pennies, he said she's given more than all the others because she's given all she has. God isn't expecting us to live like somebody else. He doesn't expect you to live like me. He doesn't expect me to live like you. He's got gifts that you've got, people you can contact, come in contact with. The Holy Spirit comes into us and uses what we have. And God says, don't compare ourselves one to another. Because from his perspective, we don't understand what's going on. A lot of times people will look at pastors and say, oh, you must have a great reward. Look, they preach every Sunday and people come forward and they do this, that, and the other thing. How much of what a pastor does isn't using everything they've got? You don't know. You don't know when you look at somebody who doesn't seem to be doing anything for God, maybe they're doing all that God's given them to do. We have to be careful. He tells us we stand and fall before our master. 
I can't look at anybody. I can't even look at my family members and say they're not doing what God wants them to do, even as well as I know them. Because they still have to stand and fall before their maker, their master. And then they come and they tell these disciples, he's risen. He's risen. And they don't believe him. I don't know what they were thinking, you silly women, or what have you been drinking this morning on your way to the way to the sepulchre or whatever, what have you been smoking, you know, you 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 know, you must have gone to the wrong place. <laughs> you know, you know, they might have been saying women maybe you had the same idea we have that women have no sense of direction. Maybe they're going, You went the wrong way, you know, you went to the wrong place. But they didn't believe. Because they still did not believe. In John, it tells us that John and Peter ran to the, to the tomb to see. And they came back, having seen that it was empty. Nobody there. We have a risen Savior. We have a Savior who's no longer dead. We're the only religion out there that can say that. Buddha's dead, Krishna's dead, Muhammad's dead. The founders of every other religion is dead. Ours died and rose again. He has an empty tomb. Matter of fact, for most of these other religions, part of your following of that religion is to go visit the tomb of the founder. You want to go visit the tomb in Israel, you're going to find it empty. Nobody's there. And it's not because of grave robbers. <laughs> because it's gone. That is, the, that is the lie that the Sanhedrin tried to, to, to give out. You know, they paid the soldiers to say that while we were asleep, the disciples stole the body. You know, there are so many problems with that statement, it's not even funny. The Romans had the same rule that the United States military had. If you fall asleep on post, you're going to be dead. <laughs> you're going to be killed for falling asleep on post, especially during times of activities like they were in. If they, if even if, if they were asleep, how do they know that anybody stole the body because they couldn't speak that anybody stole it because they were asleep? You know, that would be like me testifying. While I was sleeping, you know, uh, James came into my house and stole everything in my house. The police were going to immediately ask, well, how do you know James came into your house while you were asleep? Well, I just think he did. This is why the stories that were circulated about the resurrection make no sense. You know, if they had gone to the wrong, wrong, wrong place, I can guarantee you the scribes and Pharisees knew where the right tomb was. They sealed it. <laughs> you know, and they would have just gone to the right tomb and say, uh, you guys are pretty dumb. You didn't even go to the right tomb. <laughs> you know, he was erected from the dead and was seen by the 12 disciples all the people in the upper room, and he walked around for days <laughs> preaching the gospel after he resurrected, before he was taken back into heaven. You know, he was seen. Nobody in their right minds could have been able to say he's not, he didn't resurrect. And you know, his resurrection also had some other part in it. He had to have a lot of his body healed so that he could even walk. 
Think about this. If you had a six-inch nail driven through your feet, how much walking are you going to do after, after it was taken out? Now, if you've ever even stepped on a nail, you don't want to walk on that foot for a while. And I'm talking little tiny, tiny nails that you step on. You're, you're sore for a while, and you don't want your tender with your foot. He had this huge nail driven through his feet that kept him up on a cross. God did a healing of him, not just a resurrection, but a healing on him. He still had the holes because he was able to show them to Thomas. And in Revelation, it tells us he, he appears in heaven as the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. I am so glad God's going to take away the tears from our eyes because there would be no way I could look at that for eternity and see the cost of our entrance into eternity. The nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the sword on his side, the crown of thorns, the beating that he took. That was the payment for us to be able to be accepted by, by God. And we just want to keep this in mind. The resurrection is the completion of the story, but the, we have to look at why he came and why he was resurrected. We, as people, are sinners. God says everybody's a sinner. Even after we're saved, we still are sinners. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we weren't. <laughs> but that's not the truth. We are sinners. We're going to make decisions that are against him. Jesus had to pay the price because the price for sin is death. Adam and Eve were told that the day you eat of the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And they didn't die physically that day that they ate, but they did die spiritually. Can you imagine what it would have been like every night they, had, they got to walk with God in the garden? Have you ever wanted to walk with God and just say, I'd like to just talk with God about these questions and have him give me a verbal answer, you know, hear his voice? Adam and Eve got to walk with God every night in the cool of the evening. And I'm sure he did most of the talking, but you know, I'm sure they had questions as well and they were able to interact. They ate the food of knowledge of good and evil, and they lost that. They lost the intimacy with God because of their sin. And even in that case, God had to slay an animal to cover their, cover their, cover their bodies. Because he, he clothed them with skin. He had to get the skin from someplace. And he used an example of this is what it costs to cover your sin is death. And you can imagine how hard that would have been because for them, these animals were probably equivalent to pets. You know, there was just the two of them with a, whole bun, you know, with a bunch of animals. And God had to kill animals to clothe them. Jesus had to die to pay the sin debt. Sin, we deserve punishment. Eternal separation from God. Jesus lived a perfect life and died on that cross so that we could have that forgiveness. And then he rose from the dead so that he could show he had power over it all. If you don't know Jesus, today is the day to know him. And we're not just saying that to know him, but really to have a relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not religion. 
religion is a whole bunch of rules. Do this, 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 and this. And if you do more of the good and, and, and then you disobey, you're going to be okay. That's religion. And if you look at all the different religions out there, that's what they are all about. And if you witness to people, you hear, well, I'm hoping my good will outweigh my bad so God will accept me. No, he says the wages of sin is death. One sin is punished. He is a good judge. Now, can you imagine going and you know, getting in charge for a crime, you go in front of the judge and say, well, judge, I'm a really good person. I just made this one mistake. If the judge let you off without defense, he would be a very bad judge. Because his job is to judge what you did, not all the times you didn't do <laughs> bad. God is a good judge. He's going to say, you sinned. The punishment for sin is death. Jesus can come up and say, this is one of mine. They believe in me. My blood's covered that sin. They don't deserve death because we're going to give them grace. We're going to give them grace. We're going to give them mercy. We're not giving them what they deserve. We're giving them mercy. And Father, by the way, when they get into heaven, we're going to give them everything that belongs to us. That is the value of the salvation that we have. We're given in mercy. We're not given what we deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. And God says, I'm going to be merciful because you have believed in the Son. And then once we step into heaven, we get his wonderful grace. We get his grace down here too, but when we step into heaven, just think of the grace we're getting. All that we have, the new heaven and earth, the streets of gold, mansions built for each one of us depending on what we've let him do in our life. His grace. Not to mention all the grace he gives us on this world as we walk with him and he gives us good instead of bad. He takes and blunts the reaping and sowing by taking and harvesting it and taking it away. He lets us get some, but not. Can you imagine if we got everything we deserved? Even as Christians? All the times that we did something wrong and if we got everything that we deserved, wouldn't be a great life, would it? But he's there and he's saying, I paid for their sin. And this belief is not just saying, I believe that he existed, I believe he died, I believe he rose again. No. We're told that the, that the demons believe and the devils believe in it, but they're not going to heaven because of their belief. This is a choice that says, I believe that you did it, and I want that relationship. It was for me. I deserve punishment. For my, I am a sinner, and I deserve that punishment, and I'm going to accept the gift that God willingly gives. <coughs> if you haven't done that, do it today. That easy. Admit you're a sinner. Admit that you deserve punishment, and say, God, I believe that you paid for that, and I want to ask you into my life. If you do that, let me know. I've got a good starting material to get you started on the right path. But we want to be able to do that. We want to look at God and say, I want Jesus. And let him make us a new cre creation. He will change our lives if we let him. One of the greatest things when you get saved, and if you had been saved for a long time, think back, what did God do into your life when he made you a Christian? He has done something in your life. He has changed something already in your life. 
the longer you walk with him, the more changes you have in your life to be able to look back on because he's going to keep making us more like him as long as we give him that chance. He wants to make, his ultimate goal is to make us just like him. While we walk on this earth, we're not going to get there. <laughs> it would be really wonderful if we did. Then we could be like Enoch and Elijah and go home really early. <laughs> so there's a goal for you. Get, get just like God on this earth and you get to go home early. <laughs> but we need to be able to say, I want to be changed. When we die or, or raptured, whichever comes first for us, we will be like him. We will be made who he says we are. Until then, we have to let him work in our life. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, if there is anybody in this room that needs to know you, we ask that you grab hold of their heart today. Let them become your child and, and come and, and talk about that they made that decision. We just thank you for that, Lord, and just help us today as we go through the day to remember your resurrection. Remember your victory over all that has happened, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.